Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13? And I want to begin by reading the first few verses um, as we start into a series through the month of January, what I entitled, What the World is Coming to. And we're addressing the issue of the prophecies regarding what the Bible calls the end times. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading chapter 13 of Revelation, verse 1. And it reads as follows. It says, And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and he had ten horns and seven heads, and with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast its power and his throne and great authority. And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we read your word because we believe it is the only fountain of absolute truth available to mankind. And we look to it, Lord, to guide and direct us in the paths that you'd have us follow. So we pray, Father, for your insight and understanding in this time we spend together now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What is the purpose of biblical prophecy? Well, last week I began to uh, broach that topic and I think it's important for us to understand that biblical prophecy isn't simply just about foreseeing the future or foretelling it or giving forecasts and predictions of what's going to be taking place. But basically what it sets out to do is to reveal God's plan for the redemption of mankind. That when we read from Genesis to Revelation, we're not simply seeing a history of the world. We're seeing God revealing to us His plan really from before the moment of creation, before God ever said, let there be light, and the universe began to become what it has become. He had a plan in place to redeem mankind that we might become fully and completely the sons of God living and reigning with Him for eternity. But basically, as the prophets often said, for example, Jeremiah 29, 11, he said to him, I know the plans I have for you, that God has a plan. To Isaiah, he said, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. And then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. Ezekiel wrote, when all this comes true, he said to his, his generation, it surely will be then that you will know that a prophet has been among you. You see, unlike man, God is not traveling through time or history and simply observing it alongside of us. Rather, we're told in places like Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that he is the author and the finisher of all those things. In Revelation 22, 13, at the very end of the Bible, he makes this statement. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That essentially God who is outside of time, even though he's also penetrates all of time, is drawing events to a place that he calls the end. 
And that's why we, when we look at the Bible, we begin to discover that God has not left us without clear indications. One of the things that Peter warned in his second letter in the third chapter, he said there would come a time in the last days when people would say, where are the signs of his coming? Where are the fulfillment of the promises that he made? This kind of skepticism about the Bible and what it speaks about future events. And so what we're going to be doing through the next couple of weeks, both on Sunday mornings and Wednesday night, are talking about what those signs are. And I just simply want to tease you a little bit by saying it's pretty staggering to figure out how to put all of the signs together in short messages like today for two hours or something like that. How do you compress that into a short time frame? Because they, with the information age exploding, so does the information that coincides with what the Bible says. Which is one of the things that makes Bible prophecy central and unique. As Amos the prophet was told, he said, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. So as I mentioned last week, a third of the Bible... Is, consists of prophecy, 80% of which has been fulfilled, but 20% of that still remains to be fulfilled. There are future events that the Bible refers to as variously as the end times, the last days, the day of the Lord, the time of the end, the end of the age. All of these are different terms used by different prophets and by Jesus and Paul and others to indicate that it's talking about a period of time which will really be the last series of events prior to the second coming of Christ when he will set his kingdom up upon the earth. Yet there are those today, and I find their number increasing, who would say to us that the study of end times prophecy is not something useful. We shouldn't invest our time into it. And they offer various arguments. They say, first of all, it's too confusing. There's too many different points of view, and it just gets too confusing, which also means that it's full of all sorts of speculations about what might have been. And I have to kind of agree with that to some degree. There are a lot of people who don't classify their speculations. They'll say, this sign means this, when they really don't have the biblical authority to do that. And I promise you, as we go through these things, I'm going to tell you, this is how it seems to me I could be wrong because I've seen many times these things change as the circumstances change. But there also some will say, well, it's just too divisive. Christians get into arguments about enough stuff as it is already. We don't want another thing to cause arguments. But most of all, this is where I found some, many people said, it really doesn't matter. It's all going to pan out in the end. And I had a student say that to me one time, and my response to him was, he says, why do we even bother looking at it? It's all going to pan out in the end. And I said, first of all, because the Bible speaks extensively about it, and secondly, because Jesus seemed to think it was important that we know. For example, we have Jesus repeatedly talking about the end times in places like Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, and various other places like Matthew 13. But what he said most importantly, for example, was keep watch, speaking specifically in the context of the end times and the events that would transpire, he said, keep watch because you do not know the day your Lord will come. 
Now, some people have said, because we don't know the day, therefore we don't need to bother watching. Jesus said the opposite. Because you don't know the day or the hour, you should be watching. In Luke 28, he said, watch out so that no one will deceive you. So the person who is ignorant of the signs of the end times is susceptible to being deceived and misled. Now, this word that he uses here, watch, literally means to give strict attention to something because if you are remiss or if you're indolent, that is, don't have the energy or the effort to take the time to do it, some destructive calamity can suddenly overtake you. That's what the word means to watch. It's being prepared. It's it's the idea of a sentry who is on guard watching for any sign of the enemy attack or invasion. To even his disciples, we find them asking him in Matthew 24, 3, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? To his critics who refused to recognize the moment they were in, he said that they had failed to interpret the signs of the time and therefore missed his first coming completely. But even maybe more relevant to most of us, there's a promise that he gives to us, a promise of blessing. In Luke 12, 37, he says, there will be special favor for those who are ready and waiting for his return. In fact, in Revelation 1-3, he says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So the whole point is, it is important. And it's important because the return of Christ, his second coming to set up his kingdom on the earth is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the things Paul referred to it as the hope of our calling in Ephesians 1.15, he said, the hope of his calling not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So on one hand, it's important to say that if we follow Jesus, it brings blessing into our present life that otherwise we would not experience. But then again, Paul warned, speaking of the resurrection and the return of Christ, in writing to the Corinthians in chapter 15, he said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most to be pitied. We're pitiful if all we do is hope for what Jesus can do. And this becomes the problem. We began to become so focused on how God can benefit our life in this present world that we really become deaf, dumb, and stupid about where the world is heading and how it is changing around us. That overused example of the frog in the kettle gets overused because you and I tend to be kind of frog-like. And we live in this kind of a kettle world. And so the thing that we need to understand is that the Bible is designed to help us foresee and to navigate our responses to the changes that are taking place in the world. And the problem for many Christians throughout history is that when things become good, they settle in and fall in love with their life in this present world. And some even to the point where if Christ were to return today would consider it an annoying interruption because the Seahawks haven't made it to the Super Bowl yet. (laughs) 
I know, I, I, I tease my wife, but it's, it's a true story where she literally said to me before I married, I, she says, I, I hate to admit it, but I really hope the Lord doesn't come back too soon because I want to get married first. Well, it's kind of cute. I can see why she felt that way. <laughs> and then before long, she's praying all the time, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> but that's my issue. But anyway, the whole point is that this is the hope of our calling that one day Jesus will take us home to be with him for all of eternity. And in fact, John said it's so powerful that he wrote in his first letter in chapter 3, he says, everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's nothing that motivates a believer to walk the straight and narrow, if I can use that term. The fact that I know that my destination isn't here, but it's with him in eternity. Which explains why Jesus said in Luke 21, when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. When these things, the question is, what things is he referring to? Now, it's implied, isn't it? That if he says these things, he's pointing at something. There are things that we can see. There are signs of the times in which we live that we can look at. And so the idea that that's a waste of time and energy or not valuable really confuses me or reveals that whoever says that is confused. What I have done or am attempting to do over the next three Sundays and Wednesdays is to really summarize these events into three major categories because we are limited in the time that we have to talk about these things. And basically, under the topic of one world government, one world economy, and one world religion. And I want to begin today by talking about one world government. Because you have to understand, first of all, God's plan from the very beginning was that there be one world government. You had one world, which he happened to create, which was ruled by one man, under God. That's where we begin in Genesis 1.26, the first accounts of the creation of man. It says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, literally to rule over, to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Again, to rule over the earth. That was God's perfect plan. And it worked perfectly before sin entered into the human experience. And that's when we begin to discover very quickly that the serpent, and by the way, the serpent that we see in Genesis chapter 3, tempting Eve, is identified exactly who he is later on in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where he says, the great dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Any question as to who the serpent was in the garden? okay, that he set out to corrupt God's perfect plan and to replace it with a plan of his own. Now, we need to ask a question, why would he want to do that? Well, Isaiah reveals it to us in Isaiah 14, 13, where he quotes Satan or Lucifer saying, I will raise my throne above God. I will make myself like the most high God. He seeks to usurp 
God's role as the Lord of the universe. It's a foolish endeavor, but as I've always said, sin makes you stupid. So what he is trying to do is stupid, but what he set out to do was basically, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.2, to bring mankind under the sway of the prince of the power of this world, the spirit who is now working among the sons of disobedience. So that using the pride and the lust that begins to pervade and drive men when they have fallen under the power of sin, he persuaded Adam and Eve to sin against God, quite literally to rebel against God's law. Now, God's law was easy to remember in that time. Thou shalt not eat the fruit of this tree. They had one rule. That's all they had to keep. And they couldn't keep it. The one thing that God said, thou shalt not, they violated. But in that moment, they became, in effect, lawless ones. And they condemned all of mankind, including, of course, you and me, to a world of decay, a world of destruction, a world of death. That's why I find it always so interesting when people say, well, I don't believe in a God who would allow evil to be in the world. On one level, if there is no evil, there is no good. You can't love God if you don't have the option to not love God. But when we look at the evil in the world, it is there because men choose not to follow God. They choose not to honor the God who created them. They are choosing to be as lawless as possible in order to be the masters or the captains of their own fate rather than submitting themselves to God. But what Satan essentially did through that act was entrap mankind into a kind of a slavery that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 2. He says, the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. In fact, it's a kind of dominion that had been transferred from Adam now into the hands of Satan himself. As was revealed when Lucifer seeks to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. Remember what he said to Jesus, the final word of temptation? He said, if you bow down and you worship me, all the kingdoms of the world, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. He can't give away something he doesn't have, but he does have the kingdom of the world. That's why later on in Daniel, when he refers to kingdoms like Persia and Greece, he talks about the angels that govern over those empires, and they're demonic angels, they're evil angels, they're fallen angels who control the governments of the world. Now, this is a little hard for us to envision because we often think about there are the good guys and the bad guys. But I think if anything about leaked emails and hacked servers proved to us through the last election, there aren't any white hats out there. That power corrupts, Lord Acton said, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so there are great demonic forces that are at play Ephesians chapter 6 describes these principalities and these powers that move in the world today, controlling 
not just nations, but even cities and communities and neighborhoods, neighborhoods that you and I live in. And the warning that Paul gave in Ephesians 6 is he says, don't try to make war against these things in your own strength. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, we don't battle against flesh and blood. We are fighting against spiritual forces, and the only weapon that you and I have is prayer. And there's our weakness. We think it's the ballot box. I love what Chuck Colson used to always say, the second coming won't come in on Air Force One. And I, you know, people get excited about changes in political leadership. And we, you know, everybody wants to drain the swamp. I get that. But where's your hope? Where's your hope? He offered Jesus the kingdom of this world. And of course, Jesus refused. But you need to understand that from the very beginning, Satan has been searching for that someone who would take the bargain. Not to become a Christ, in fact, but to become the exact opposite, to become antichrist. A man that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 2 this way, he said, the lawless one will be revealed. The word lawless means he is in rebellion and opposition to the laws of God, the ways of God, the will of God, the rule of God. He will be revealed, he said, whose coming will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing because, he said, they refused to love the truth and so to be saved. So that just as Jesus is the embodiment of God the Father in flesh, The Antichrist, or who Revelation refers to as the beast, will be the embodiment of Satan and all of his evil works and powers in flesh. And that's where, as we read this morning, it said the dragon gave the beast, this Antichrist, this future world leader, his power, his throne, and great authority And men worshiped the dragon because he had been given authority to the beast. So in short, Lucifer's entire agenda is to become the object of human worship. And he will accept that worship on any level. See, God's very exclusive. He will only allow you to worship him in spirit and in truth. Lucifer will take worship any way he can get it. If he can entrap you into a lifestyle that is demonic and satanic and devilish, then he'll take that until one day he will have you on your face and on your, before him in obeisance to his power. And ultimately, the goal of one world government is to create a, a, a political, a... Uh, economic and spiritual dimension upon the planet that is all focused upon one thing, and that is serving Lucifer, Satan, the dragon, the serpent's agenda to be the object of God in the world of men. But you see, throughout history, Satan has had this recurring problem. The term that the Bible uses is the restrainer. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 8 says, you know what is restraining or literally holding back 
that he, that is the Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time, that is in God's time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Keep in mind, when we look at the changes even in our own culture, going from a, a biblically-based culture and morality and legal system to where we are going today, and you say, what's going on? The Bible says it's the mystery of lawlessness. What we're living in a culture, not just here, but it's sweeping the globe of throwing off the will of God because we see them as shackles and restraints to living the way we want to live our lives. So that that which once was unthinkable now has become doable and even desirable. It's the mystery of lawlessness. He says it's already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed. Interesting, the word revealed that's used here is the word apocalypto in Greek. It's where we get the book, that concept of apocalypse, which is actually the title of the book of Revelation. And what it means simply is the curtain is now opened and what has been hidden will suddenly become obvious and revealed. So that it seems reasonable to conclude that as we get closer and closer to those pinnacle moments of the last days, that we will see the curtain opening wider and wider and the mystery of lawlessness will not be quite so mysterious anymore. But it'll be evidently played out before us. But here's the thing that concerns me. If we are not watching, if we're not becoming informed and understanding where these things are going, Paul's or Jesus' warning again in Luke was, you're going to be deceived you're going to look and say, well, you know, really, if two gay people love each other, what's wrong with that? Well, you know, if it's going to mess up her life, why not get an abortion? And we begin to embrace these things, not realizing that this is the mystery of lawlessness spreading through a culture. So that even now Christians are asking, well, if it's legal to smoke pot, what's wrong with that? And we begin to simply become conformed to the temperature of the world around us. That's what the word lukewarm means, you know. It means you go room temperature. You become room temperature. You are no longer hot for God. You're not even cold against God. You're just, you've just gone lukewarm. You've just gone room temperature, which in a biological sense is also called death. Okay? Of course, as I say all this, this hasn't kept Satan from trying. Because see, Satan doesn't know what God is doing exactly. He doesn't know when he will strike upon the right vehicle for the fulfillment of the Antichrist or the beast. And so he keeps on throwing mud up against the wall, hoping something will stick. And we have a history of that from Nimrod in Genesis 11 all the way to Nazism and beyond that you have a series of megalomaniacs, people whose ultimate goal is to rule the entire world and control it as best they can. 
He is laboring to bring to the fore his one world ruler, the Antichrist, the beast, who will force the world, as we read in Revelations 12, 4, to worship the dragon. He's the one that Revelation 6 speaks about in describing him as being a rider with a bow who was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And that's when the great tri the tribulation period begins with this rider on a white horse. Interesting. Immediately we think about white horses, we think about good guys. I love the way that Daniel described. He said, he will destroy wonderfully. He will destroy wonderfully. People will go, oh, who can make war with a beast? He is so wondrous. But we might ask, how has he been restrained up to this point? I mean, there's a lot of debate as to who is the restrainer. Some people say it's the Holy Spirit. I don't agree with that. I don't think God takes his Holy Spirit away from the world. I think some people look for some personality, but I think it really comes down to the church. Part of the reason I believe in the rapture of the church is I think that what restrains no longer is the fact that the church is no longer here to be a restraining. Jesus said we're salt and light in the world. That is a restraining influence upon evil. And he says when it's been taken out of the way, then he can do whatever he wants. But how has he been restrained in practical ways up till now? Well, first of all, I think language has always been a problem historically. If you go back to chapter 6 of Genesis, when he talks about God destroying the world through the flood, one of the things we know about the world before the flood was they existed in complete and total unity. Total unity upon the planet. They all spoke one language. They all basically shared one culture. And that's why Noah was an oddity in their culture because he was a man who had a heart after God, apparently one of few that still existed. And it says, the Lord saw that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So man, unredeemed by God, has a penchant for evil all the time. And yet, when we come to the Tower of Babel, they decide to build this great tower, this empire of Nimrod, this warrior against the Lord. And the Lord simply says, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And God confounded the languages so that they might not be able to organize so quickly and efficiently. And to this very day, we find that language is one of the main barriers for unity amongst people. But there's also the issue of time and space. The ability to cover and travel great distances and to retain uh, great masses of land or, or pop peoples. You know, part of the flaw of our, our Middle East policy is you can only control the territory that you actually occupy. And when you don't occupy it and you withdraw your troops, what happens? Everything falls back into chaos and somebody else seeks to occupy. So this has always been a hindrance to those who want to control and conquer the world. How do we control it? We have to populate it. How do we populate it when it takes us months, years to get to certain places and there are all sorts of natural barriers, which is what makes our present time so unique in human history. Can I say this to you for more than just the obvious reasons? 
There has never been a time in human history like the time we are in right now, especially with regards to these kind of issues. Because we are living in the first time in human history where a literal fulfillment of the idea of one world government and one world economy and one world religion has even been on the table for discussion. Because as much as men might wistfully say, wouldn't it be nice if we could all get together and get along, they've known the impossibility of that. But through the unprecedented exponential explosion of technology and what is coming in the world is a technocracy, in other words, a world run not by governments, not by politicians, but run by technocrats. And that's something we'll get into next week more in detail. We are beginning to erase the barriers of language, time, and space. In fact, we'll get into that more next Sunday, but something that was foretold also by the prophets. When Daniel, Daniel 12, 4 said, Daniel, the angel said to Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book of his prophecy until the time of the end. In other words, you're not going to understand what I've just said to you until you get to the time of the end, and suddenly it will make complete sense, which I mean, I'm a simple thinking guy, but I look and saying, you know, I think I understand what he's talking about here. Hmm, I wonder if we are in that time. Hmm. But he said, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And the word knowledge, or increase there in the Greek, or the Hebrew, literally means to multiply exponentially. So that when you talk about just published materials in the world, if you look at all the materials that ever published throughout human history as far back as we can go, and we realize that today we have 200 trillion more books available than were available in 1900. In other words, if you put knowledge chart on a graph, it goes like this. It kind of just inks long, and then all of a sudden you get to the 20th century and it goes, and it keeps on going. It's going so fast that I have to have Alexa and Echo and Siri in my life just to help me find where I left my keys. It's all-knowing. But we are moving into an era of quantum computers. Do you understand what quantum computers are? Very few people do because... But basically, one quantum computer is going to be able to run everything in the world. It's kind of like this. Uh, uh, if you... Do a search on your computer for some piece of data. It's like the computer has to go through, if it's like a 300, say you take the books of the Bible, it starts, it would be starting in Genesis 1, and you say, find the X that's in the book, marked in red, and it would go from page 1 all the way until it finds it, one page at a time, 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 until it eventually comes to it. And it's wonderful that it can reach that so quickly. But what a quantum computer does is it says, I have a 350-page book. I put a red X on one of the pages, and I want you to find it. It will find it instantaneously. 
That's the speed in which it moves. It's a thousand times faster than the fastest computer that we have today. And as we move into what's called the Internet of Things, we'll get into more of this later on, (laughs) you realize that everything that you're wearing, your clothing, everything you eat, everything you buy in the store will be tracked. Today, but what Daniel also foretold, that there would rise in the end a final world empire. And listen to how he described it in Daniel 7, 23. He says it will be different from all other kingdoms. So you can't look back in history and say, oh yeah, this is like that. No, this is going to be something completely unique. And will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it, It's got a description of the book of Revelation. (laughs) The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. He, that is the leader of this kingdom, will speak against the Most High, oppress the saints, and try to change set times, alter the calendar and the laws, change morals and ethics. Even those things... You know, there are a series of efforts right now to rewrite the calendar. If we go to a five-day week, we, our calendar works perfect. And they say it's much more efficient. But it only has one hang-up. It eliminates the Sabbath. <laughs> and most religious holidays will go away. So I don't know how literal to take that. He'll change the set times. But it's interesting, this kingdom has ten horns, ten kings, and I've often puzzled over who that is, and I've, we've looked at, you know, we've talked about the Roman Empire, and we've talked about the European Union, and different things people have speculated as, could it be this, could it be that? And I'm just here to tell you, I've come up with my latest candidate, <laughs> and it has the perfect ten. And you're just going to have to come Wednesday night to find out what that is. <laughs> and I say that not only as a cheap way of getting you here, but it's going to take some time to explain. But let me continue on because time is something I don't have a great deal about. The idea of one world government was always attractive to various people, but not very practical. And most people have loved the idea that their nation, their community, their culture is is better than anybody else's and they want to maintain it and so forth and so on. But it was the 20th century that brought us world wars and world wars of such uh, breadth and depth and destruction, so cataclysmic that the dream of actually having one world government began to arise. It's interesting that out of world war came the idea of world government. And so it was, men began to talk, leaders began to talk about a new world order, a league of united nations that would make war absolute, or absolute, obsolete, excuse me, to fulfill what is now the motto chiseled on stone outside the United Nations building in New York, A quote from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 4, he says that they will judge between the nations and settle disputes. 
so that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Now, the problem with that idea is that in context, Isaiah says, when the Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom upon the earth, there will be no more war. If you and I try to set up a, a regime of some kind that eliminates war, we just create another reason for people to go to war. So that since the Iron Curtain has fallen, there's never been a moment uh, in those years in which there hasn't been at least 40 armed conflicts going on in the world around us at any one time. And the world is more deadly today than it has been since World War II. It's interesting because we sit back and go, okay, so what? Well, you have to understand the list of luminaries who have endorsed this idea. I mean, let me give you a few of them. Albert Einstein, writing in an open letter to the United Nations in 1947, said, the final aim is one world government. The final aim of the United Nations is one world government. Pope John Paul II, he said, one world government is inevitable. Pope Benedict said, this is a strongly felt need for the concept of the family of nations with true world political authority. Pope Francis, the green pope, globalization is good and enables us to keep growing and, to, and take us to peace. Like I said, I don't have time to go through the list. I have numerous from Pope Paul IV, from Robert Kennedy, Walter Cronkite, Zbigniew Brzezinski, the head, one of the founders of the Trilateral Commission, along with um, uh, David Rockefeller, Jimmy Carter, Bill and Hillary Clinton, Nelson and David Rockefeller, Richard Nixon, Colin Powell, Strobe Talbot, who actually works for the UN now after having been Deputy Secretary of State under B Bill Clinton, Henry Kissinger, George H. Bush. The list goes on and on and on. As I said, I don't have time to read them all. But the one I thought was most interesting because he has probably done more to push America into the world of the United Nations is our current outgoing president, uh, Barack Hussein Obama. And he said the following, he said, the old order isn't holding. There needs to be a new order. Based on a different set of principles, that's based on a sense of common humanity, that's based on economies that work for all people, all nations must come together to build a stronger global regime. Now, do you know what the word regime means? Authoritative government. We need to come together and work to build the toward. And as I said, more than any president in the history of our country, he has uh, pushed us in that direction. It's interesting, I was sharing with ushers, that he did something this last year that has never happened in the United States before. You see, the Constitution of the United States forbids the president to hold any other position or office outside of being president of the United States. He can't be a governor, he can't be a senator, he can't be even the chairman of the board of a privately held corporation. And yet this year, Barack Obama, going against precedent, accepted the chairmanship of the Security Council of the United Nations. 
a violation of the Constitution. Historically, that's always been filled by, uh, when the United States turned to be the chairman, it's always been filled by our ambassador to the UN. But this year, he chose to take that seat himself, breaking all precedent in the history of the world. It's an interesting thing because he also surrendered control of the internet to the UN. We have controlled it since its inception and he has given it over to the UN. Significant. It's worth about $3 trillion a year to the UN in, in monies that they can generate from it so that in many ways it increasingly becomes self-funding. But also, it just makes me feel good to know that China and Syria and other countries are now going to be helping to control what we see on the internet. One of the questions or arguments that people have raised over the years is how in the world could this ever happen? Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said there'll be wars and rumors of wars and nations fighting against nations and kingdoms and so forth, which has been the history of the world. How in the world is that going to stop and it's all going to become unified around one world government? It's interesting because we find that people who are the greatest proponents for one world government have provided us the answer. David Rockefeller, the president of Chase Manhattan Bank, uh, uh, his father was a founder of Standard Oil. Uh, he was a co-founder with the big new Brzezinski of the Trilateral Commission, um, which is basically a consortium of 300 major leaders from around the world to help set policy and whose stated goal is to work towards one world government. David Rockefeller said, we are on the verge of a global transformation all we need is the right major crisis and the nations will accept the new world order. What crisis? There are two right now. First of all, Al Gore said in the London Times, speaking of, well, what he called global warming, but it isn't warming so much anymore, so... So now it's climate change. And that's one thing that's really strange because climate never changes. It is the awareness of the crisis itself that will drive the change. And one of the ways it will drive the change is through global governance and global agreements. Wednesday night we'll talk more about how climate change has become a force for change, not because of the climate, but because of how it transfers power to groups like the United Nations and others. The other one that I think is going to be a big factor is global terrorism. That is changing the functioning of military and police forces into a cooperative effort centered around the organizational format of the United Nations. But you'll have to come again on Wednesday night to get the details. I would simply close with, again, Jesus' warning when he said, when you see these things happening, look up for your redemption draws nigh. People ask me sometimes, well, what happens, what has to happen or take place before God raptures his church? Um, and I would argue nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, I, if the church is the restrainer, 
as I, I'm not, you know, I'm not rock solid on that, but I tend to go in that direction. Then we will see that when the church is taken out of the way, things will begin to unfold very quickly. And my hope is that you and I won't be here, or at least let me put it this way, that we'll be viewing it from the, from the cheap seats in heaven and not here on the ground. I hope that's your hope. Father God, I pray in the name of your son Jesus that this brief and somewhat superficial introduction into this huge and complex topic will help us to kind of get our heads pointed in the right direction, get our feet firmly fixed underneath us, and that we would begin to see ourselves as a redeemed people awaiting the moment of our final redemption. That, Lord, you would just begin to emblazon eternity before our eyes, that we would not live within the shadows of time, but we would live in the bright and brilliant light of your eternal purposes and promises. That when you said that your kingdom isn't of this earth, that you were talking about a different kingdom in which righteousness reigns and you sit on the throne as king. Lord, we pray that, I pray that we would enthrone you in our hearts every day, realizing that everything around us is temporary. And when people say, where are the signs of his coming? We'll be those who will be able to say right here in his word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue, we want to invite you to invite you. <laughs> we want to invite you to partake of the elements of communion, which is only appropriate, I think, at the end of every gathering of the saints, simply because it is taking everything that God has spoken to us through our worship and through our prayer and through His Word, and getting us to focus upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was a defining moment in, in human history. But the hope of the calling of the believer isn't that Jesus will die, he's already died. The hope of our calling isn't that he will be raised from the dead because he's already been raised and he's sitting on the right hand of the Father in heaven. But the hope is that one day you and I will be with him. And as we've talked about, there is a passage that the world has to go through in order for that moment to be fulfilled. To fulfill the prayer that Jesus said we should be praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And that's what the second coming of Christ is. Him coming and setting up his kingdom on the earth and enforcing his will upon the planet. And God says we should pray every day that we are living as people who are already in that eternal reality and not just simply people who are captives of time. But those who live in a redeemed life. If you are, come and partake of the elements. If you're not sure, then don't. But you need to reconcile and, and settle that with God. There will be myself and others who are available here to pray with you uh, as we continue on together and to help you to respond to whatever thing God is doing in your life right now.